0: We directed an hospital to be erected near our city of Dublin for the reception and entertainment of such ancient, maimed and infirm officers and soldiers, to the end that such as have faithfully served, or hereafter shall faithfully serve us, our heirs or successors, in the strength and vigour of their youth, may in the weakness and disaster that their old age, wounds or other misfortunes may bring them into, find a comfortable retreat and a competent maintenance therein.
1: The Royal Hospital Kilmainham was built in the 1680s under that charter of Charles II. Its purpose was to provide a rest home for wounded and retired officers and soldiers of the King's army. But the idea for such a building didn't originate in Ireland. Noel Deschenu of the Office of Public Works.
2: One has to go to Paris for the, the beginning, and the beginning is Les Invalides. At that time, Louis Fourteenth had these armies that were rampaging around the continent, and he was ending up with... Uh, soldiers were a danger to the populace, and many of them were old and infirm, so he decided that he'd uh, set up a hospice for the uh, pensioners from the army. Meanwhile, both Britain and Ireland had been ruled by Cromwell, and during that time, uh, Charles II was in exile In France. Now, with him in exile was James, the Duke of Ormond. This was James Butler of the Kilkenny family. And the Duke of Ormond returned to Ireland in 1660. And he set about straight away to make us uh, a capital city. We've got to remember the Duke of Ormond did a great deal for Dublin. It was he who set up the uh, Phoenix Park. Mm -hmm. He gave us the keys uh, along the Liffey. And uh, he obviously had heard something of Les Invalides in Paris because he set about seeking a charter from Charles II to set up a similar establishment in Dublin.
1: The Duke of Ormond was successful in his task and he immediately appointed an architect to draw up plans for a suitable building.
2: The only architect at that time that we know of, and he's the most famous one of the time, was William Robinson. He was the Surveyor General. Uh, that would be equivalent to State Architect. I like to think of him as my predecessor, yeah. even though it's going back quite a bit. But William Robinson, Robinson uh, set about preparing plans for uh, a hospice, as it really was, uh, not a hospital in the sense that we know it, Uh, Now, it's quite obvious that Robinson wasn't influenced by anything he saw in this country. We know that he did travel abroad, uh, and he probably would have seen the plans of uh, Les Invalides. And it's from there that we uh, got the, the plan form of the royal hospital.
1: The Duke of Ormond decided to build the rest home at Kilmainham, on a site with a long history of hospitality to travellers. Brian Baru is said to have rested there with his army in 1013 before the Battle of Clontarf. In the 12th century, Strongbow set up a priory on the site for the Knights Templars. These were then a very powerful religious group with strong military connections, and when they fell into disrepute, their land and possessions were granted to the Knights of St John of Jerusalem, or the Knights Hospitallers, They ran a hospice on the site until the mid-16th century, when all religious houses were dissolved and the land reverted to the king. The foundation stone for the new building was laid in 1680 by the Duke of Ormond, and the job was finished four years later. Noel Deshnew.
2: It was completed in 1684, and so for two and a half centuries after that, that would be right up to 1927, uh, it did stay as a pensioner's home for old soldiers as they were ancient or maimed. What we're looking at now is basically what was there in uh, shape and form in 1684. Um, so so it ran until uh, 1927, when the uh, last pensioner moved out of uh, Kilmainham and uh, he moved to, to Chelsea. Um, in 31, it was taken over by the Irish government, and it became then uh, the seat for some time of the Guard Administration. Uh, then it became a museum store. Uh, so then it went until mm-hmm. 1979, when the great proposal came, that uh, it was felt Dublin Castle would no longer be suitable for uh, the EEC conferences with the increase in the EEC. Mm-hmm. So it was decided to uh, make Kilmainham the centre for an EEC conference centre. Now, this gave the Office of Public Works a great opportunity to restore the building. That was stage one. Stage two would have been the uh, development of a conference centre, which was going to take place well away from the building and not uh, obstructing it in any way or conflicting with it. But uh, due to the recession, This has fallen through, but it's always there as a possibility in the future.
1: In the late 1970s, the staff of the Office of Public Works was already fully stretched on a number of major projects, including the concert hall, so outside consultants were brought in to advise on the restoration.
2: With hindsight now, it's great to think that we picked probably the best man available, John Costello, of a firm of uh, Costello, Mariam, Beaumont Architects. Now, John Costello is an extraordinary person because what he did was, uh, he steeped himself in research of the whole history of Kilmainham. He went back to the old records, which are all kept here in the state record office, of everything that went on in the hospital. You can see what the laundry cost, what poor old pensioners got per day. Mm -hmm. He went and steeped himself in all of this. But not only that, uh, when he went on to do the actual work, Uh, His sincerity and commitment to the whole thing seemed to uh, engender itself right through the whole building team, and you'll find it in talking to uh, Mm -hmm. some of the craftsmen Mm -hmm. that he uh, almost gave them a a will to try and get as close to perfection of what was there before. What the Office of Public Works did at that time was to set out the parameters of... uh, What was to be done, anything that could be, was to be restored, and anything that couldn't be, was to be repaired. They were the limitations, and uh, they were followed through uh,
3: very much by John. Our job was to uh, take it down, examine, uh, reassemble, and of course we were the whole time concerned with the idea of uh, carefully repairing and pushing back as very much uh, as much as was practicable of the old materials, because we felt that materials were the, really the essence of the building and are often the the whole uh, Soul of the thing. I think you diminish a building if you uh, uh, reject any of its building materials. Uh, so, in that sense, uh, the job here was really one of ex- very extensive repair, recycling, and uh, careful reassembly.
1: So, was that very different from designing a new building? John Costello again.
3: Yes, it is different from designing a new building. In the sense that, well, clearly you have a building in existence, so it makes it that much easier. It's not, in the sense, particularly a creative task, but it's an exacting task and an extremely interesting one, in the sense that you do have to get to know the building. You have to get to know it in all its aspects, both technically, physically, and in the case of a place like Kilmainham, uh, historically and socially, you get to feel of the building. Obviously, here in Comanum, uh, this was quite easy because it was such one such a lovely place and true since it had such an interest in human history. This was particularly Uh, noticeable to us when we had the good fortune to read the records. They're an interesting account, almost a a day-to-day account of the attempts of a large institution to keep a large building going, and they describe the various episodes and events concerned with maintenance, even building costs dating back to the 1600s. And also, of course, uh, as you read these things from the technical end, you're in some way uh, drawn into the spirit of the place, uh, learning such uh, small day-to-day matters as, for example, there was a little dispute, uh, miniature rebellion by the old soldiers in about 1690, shortly after the opening of the building in connection with the quality of the bread. I think they were severely disciplined as a result, and uh, equally uh, the records show, for example, the concerns of people like the chaplain, whose worry was the stove in in the chapel, which was staining the ceiling.
1: A visitor approach the Royal Hospital, and what would he see when he arrived?
2: Well, a visitor approaching from Houston Station, coming up John's Road, will come to the, the what's called the East Gate, of uh, the Royal Hospital, and he'll enter there and go through this, uh, the, the tree-lined drive up to it, and he gets his first glimpse of the Royal Hospital. Now, what I'd suggest to stop there for a moment. Because that's the elevation that shows
3: the influence of Les Invalides. Now, as you can see outside of the building itself, um, there are all these hints of the French connection in terms of the style of the building, Uh, notably the lofty slated roofs, the small dormers, and the very fine and elegant carved stonework. All this speaks of France. So also does the scale of the building which is immense and it's always a great surprise to people when they see this great building locked away in a rather quiet, sheltered part of Dublin.
1: the Office of Public Works had carried out maintenance work on the building. But despite this, by the time the restoration began, the structure was not in good condition.
4: Hubert Rin a bricklayer, spoke to me about restoring the windows. From the windowsills up the jams each side of them, and they were all rotten and we had to take them back down and rebuild them up again into the same thing. And then we got to the heads of the windows, we had to put lintels on them and uh, the rest of them had to be tied in and stitched in. There was only oak beams over them before we took out the things and then the putting in new concrete lintels over them to, to carry the weight of the building from that on up to the second story and the same had to be done on the second story and the windows still went in and the piers had to be built again onto the roof and then it had to be all, put right up to the top of it mm-hmm. to be where the stone came in for the form the water channel to carry the water off the roof.
1: And were all the windows in, in bad condition did they all have to be treated?
4: Yes they were all in bad condition, some was very bad worse than others. They all had to be redone on, as a lot of the bricks was rotten there was in it, they were old type bricks. So, oh, Did you put new bricks in? We put new bricks on, on all the windows, each side, up along, about 14 inches wide, be 18 inches, to carry the, the weight of the existing roof overhead. It.
1: The plaster work also needed a lot of attention.
3: you noticed there's a lot of plaster in the building, This was both externally and inside. Externally we used an old mix. Of lime, using a lot of lime plaster with graded pebbles and gravel, and used in a particular fashion rather to simulate what was uh, the old uh, wavy form of plaster in those days. So it was asking the uh, plasterers of today to do something a little bit unusual and out of the ordinary for them, and I think they probably enjoyed that, and they certainly gave us a very good job.
1: Pat Mitchell was one of the plasterers who worked in the Royal Hospital he told me about the problems he faced on the windows.
5: Well, um, over the windows here, as you can see, it's, um, we call it the the string line. Uh, When we come in here, it it was in bad condition. We had to um, clean it off, and uh, then we had to proceed to uh, run and fix it and uh, screw it, and then after that we had to keep dabbing it out to bring it out. It's not uh, what you call ordinary plastering, too. Very, it's very uh, tedious work. And, and uh,
1: what condition was it in?
5: Uh, oh, it was a, a very bad condition, and we had to come along and uh, run our mould along the actual face of the, of the string line, and then we come to the the bits in between, where it was uh, we had to um, do it simply freehand. That's mm. the,
1: the bits of moulding now
5: between the, the two windows. Yeah, the, the, the members there between the two windows and the yeah. corners are there. They actually had to do, be done by freehand, with, uh, which takes a um, very long time and you need well a lot of patience. Was it a difficult job? Uh, well, it uh, depends on what you call difficulty. You see, it's, um, it's just either you can do it or you can't do it. It's one of those jobs. No, it's not mm. a... An ordinary platform job as such. Yeah. yeah it was just uh, um, patience, I'd say, was the biggest uh, mm. thing you needed for. It took me actually two years for, to run that uh, string line. So,
1: did you do the entire string line right around the building?
5: Uh, yes. Both inside and out? Inside and outside, yeah. And it took me, well, maybe maybe over two years, no, give or take a few weeks, but well, it was uh, two years then, was uh, that particular type of work which uh, you'll never come across again, I'd imagine. Did you enjoy it? Uh, Well, uh, most times. Uh, times it was um, was a hassle, to say the least. But uh, it was a challenge, and then it became come a bigger challenge to actually finish the job, but uh, we got it done.
3: Now, the major task involved, as I mentioned, the stonework. This was interesting, or at least disappointing, in the sense that it was itself a repair job dating from the early 1800s. Francis Johnston, the celebrated architect who was known for the General Post Office in Dublin, and Johnston was called into a major repair job in about 1806, and uh, he, in turn, had replaced much of the stone, and we found that atmospheric pollution had very severely damaged it. The task involved, again, taking down every stone, photographing, labelling, drawing, sending to the quarry, which is a reverse, really, of the normal method of getting stone from quarries. In this
6: case, we were sending them back.
1: Larry Sharp of Stone Developments in Enniskerry takes up the story.
6: Our brief on the project was to examine all of the old stonework taken down from the building and to decide how much of this stonework could in fact be reused. Once this had been decided, the suitable stones were loaded onto our trucks and removed to our quarries at Enniskerry Mm -hmm. for cutting back and redressing to leave the stonework suitable for reuse in conjunction with the new stonework which would be also prepared at our quarries.
1: Was working on these uh, cornices a difficult job for the stonemasons?
6: Yes, in so far as that the working of the contract brought out the best of the traditional skills of the stonemason in that the new stonework had in fact to be worked in every detail to match the profiles and mouldings of the existing stonework.
1: The visitor would enter the courtyard of the Royal Hospital through the large oak door in the southern wing of the building.
2: Before he goes in he should look over the door because there is one of the tympanum. Now, a tympanum is a, a piece of timber, semicircular, carved over a doorway, mm-hmm. and there are four beautiful ones in Kilmainham. The uh, north and south, that's the one he's looking at, and the one on the very far uh, entrance door. Both of those have heads and garlands, and they're beautifully carved, and it was great work to clear away all the old paintwork on those and get down to the basic and uh, they're in beautiful condition and then on the east-west the other two entrances uh, there are uh, trophies, armorial trophies carved beautifully done too. Now he'll enter that door and he'll come into the great quadrangle. This is where the pensioners strolled around and you've got the arcaded effect, the right around three sides. Uh, however you continue across the quadrangle and then facing you is uh, the main wing. This will be the one that will interest the public most, I think, because straight ahead of you is the entrance into the Great Hall. On the left is the master's quarters, and on the right is the chapel. These are the three great uh, elements in the the design.
1: In a book on the Royal Hospital, Childers and Stuart, two military historians, describe the Great Hall as follows.
0: Merely to see the Great Hall will well repay the trouble of a visit to the hospital. This noble apartment is 100 feet in length, 50 in breadth. The upper part of the walls is decorated with 22 portraits of sovereigns and Irish statesmen, among which are included King Charles II, Queen Anne, James, Duke of Ormond, and Archbishop Marsh of Dublin. The fine old fireplace at the West End perhaps deserves a mention as a spot of supreme interest to the old men. Here, through the winter or on wet days, they enjoy their well-earned ease with drafts, newspapers, exchange of reminiscences, or the settlement of the nation's foreign and domestic
3: policy. What well, we're now as you see, in the Great Hall, and this was the soldiers' dining hall. As you can see, it's an immense space, and it's also pretty formal-looking. Looking down are uh, the 20 enormous paintings of the various governors and monarchs of the period. For example, we see up there, Charles II, and over here, the Duke of Ormond, and behind the Archbishop Marsh. These walls, you asked about color, these walls are painted deliberately a stone color. They're finely paneled. They're all a 17th century work. They're very rare and unusual. Um, We suspected the original colour might have been brown to simulate oak. In fact, these panels are just pine, but we thought that they might perhaps have been either marbled or stained in some other way. But after about the 25th layer, it was discovered that the original colour was really to simulate a stone colour.
1: However, restoring the panels to their original condition required a lot of patient work. Paddy Sullivan, a carpenter for 30 years, takes up the story.
7: What I was taught was to try and retain as much of the old stuff as as, as possible. Try and work in even what I'd be repairing, try and get bits of old moulding off of uh, panels that wouldn't be going back, and try and use them in, in the repairs.
1: What sort of condition were they in for 300-year-old panels?
7: They were pretty good, mind you. They were pretty good. Um, I thought that they'd be worse. But... um, when they were stripped and cleaned, you'd be surprised how, how, good, how good they were.
1: When you came across damage to a panel, how did you cope with it? How, what exactly did you do?
7: Well, we'll take, for instance, that panel there now, right in front of us. Usually, maybe the mould might be damaged down along here. You matter of fact, you, you may see the little line there where, where, the, where the new stuff has been mitered into it. Yes. Well, we cut out, cut out that yeah. and um, cut it off, off here and um, get that portion of the moulding off of another panel that wouldn't be used anywhere. Yes. And you grafted it into that, glue it back, mm-hmm. and um, until you were perfectly happy like this. It was in pretty good shape going back again, and that everything mm-hmm. looked to be OK. Was there a lot of, of finishing work, of sanding work? There was an amount of it, there was indeed. We had, um, we had a sander, actually, that we were able to sand um, in the middle of the panel where the banks are. Yes. But for the moulding itself, I'm I, I, I afraid it was a case of plenty elbow grease.
1: What sort of wood was on? What What are the original panels made of?
7: Yellow pine, and mm-hmm. the moulding is red deal.
1: And they lasted.
7: They years. lasted that, that length of time. they did indeed, and uh, they looked. They were, in, they were in. fairly good shape like for the, over that length. Um, so many years. Uh, one actually, that, that's that panel over, up overhead there, and you can see like it, it, it's a curved panel, Yes. and, uh, and I always remember we were we ran shots of, of some of the curved moulding, and I always yes. remember taking a piece of that for about 18 inches long and, and doing it by hand. That meant chiselling out as much of it as I could with with the chisel and mallet, and then plenty of sandpaper again until we got back into that shape of, of the original.
1: Well, we're just standing by the northern entrance, you've just opened the doors. Can you tell me what condition these two main doors
7: were in? Bad. <laughs> <laughs> very bad, actually. Um, those doors, uh, entrance to the Great Hall, from the North Wing and the um, courtyard. they were the oak doors. And um, when I saw them first, anyway, I, I said to myself mm-hmm. that they were only fit to be put in a fire. But they were, um, they were very bad. Well it, it meant, well, as you can see now it, they look fairly good, Perfect. but it meant um, making up a portion of the door. Now all the bottom part of that was gone, the bottom rail, portion of the, of the two sides of the, of the stiles were, were gone, mm-hmm. plus that panel. Yes. And uh, what it meant was making up the mortises and tenon into each other, and at the same time, grafted in, into the old wood, into the old styles, uh, and make up the panel and put it, you had to put it all in together. The panel actually had to go in first and then fix in the, the two sides which had been made up previous, but um, they were in very bad condition when, when we got them first.
1: How difficult a job is it to graft the old and the new wood together?
7: Not too bad, mind you, not too bad, because we had it the same thickness as the old wood. They're about um, two and a half inches in thickness, and um, the new stuff that we got out for the repair, we got the same thickness, so they have worked out fairly well, like with the sanding machine, and we got it down fairly good.
1: Hall also has a magnificent oak floor.
3: We were very fortunate in finding this oak floor. We didn't know it existed in the beginning of the job. and It was not until we had lifted all the various removable covers including an old oak floor that had been put down for some sort of an important ball that was held in the 1860s. We know this from the, the records and we used the oak flooring from the the hall inside in the master's dining room but the great find was this oak floor.
1: Alan Richardson, contract manager with Sisk's, takes up the story.
8: When we stripped uh, the floor out, we found out that at least 90% of the oak we uh, removed was reusable. And we managed to uh, put it through our own woodworking machines and re-thickness it. But the amazing thing was we came across boards, some up to 46 feet in length, 7 by inch and a quarter, which were in perfect condition and... 300 years ago, the, the only way they must have been cut, cut out by hand.
1: And how would that have been done?
8: Uh, well, the only way thing I can think of is the old-fashioned way it was a, a double-handed uh, cross-cut saw, a rip saw, where you excavate a pit and you have one man below and one man on top. And they both operate the same saw.
1: But it's very well matched. How did you get the modern timber to match it so well?
8: Well, i say, fortunately enough, we... We thought we were going to have a problem getting a finish on all the floors. And there's an old established Dublin firm, uh, Dwyer and Daly, Mm -hmm. and we got Tony Dwyer's help, and uh, you can see his finish results speaks for itself, you know? Mm
1: The entrance to the chapel is at the eastern end of the Great Hall. The chapel, which is suffused with warm light from 19th century stained glass windows, contains some of the most remarkable craftwork in the entire building.
3: But well, we've just entered the the lobbied before the chapel, off the Great Hall, and we're walking down an old stone-flagged floor through this beautiful wrought-iron gate, which was uh, worked about 18, 1750, and we're inside, in, uh, as it has been described by uh, Professor Cruikshank of Trinity College as one of the finest interiors in Ireland. It's a lofty and uh, magnificent place, full of colour, and uh, extremely impressive, and most particularly from its, for its fine wood carving. Our um, eye immediately is drawn to the uh, altar, which is surrounded by oak, Irish oak carving, which was done by uh, a French Huguenot by the name of Tabury. It's contemporary work, 1684, and he also designed that very famous altar table.
1: Eddie McGuinness was the carpenter who restored the altar rails in the chapel.
3: Well, uh, on the chapel, all the rails
9: had to be taken out because the floor was in a bad condition. And we had to put back the altar rails. We had a a lot of patching by hand. Mm -hmm. uh, The banisters themselves were in good conditions, but there was a lot of fine material, such as this carbon. Yes. And we had a lot of patching.
1: Mm-hmm. With and how, that and how was that done?
9: it all had to be done by hand
1: was it a very time consuming job
9: time consuming job it, it's very helped me get a chance of at this kind of work and the uh, day had passed very quick you' enjoy it and yeah always had a couple of young fellows uh, apprentices with you and they enjoyed it from that point of view from they had something to bring along with them for the rest of life. Mm-hmm.
1: The chapel is also noted for its very fine Baroque ceiling.
3: From here, looking up at the ceiling, um, you have the impression that it's mere classical motifs and details. But in fact, when we were on the scaffold, within a few feet of it, uh, the whole composition uh, is of vegetables and fruit. Uh, For example, the large pumpkins and carrots of at least four feet long. But the whole thing makes up a splendid assembly. And it also has quite a bizarre history because, in fact, we're not looking at the original work in terms of its material. Uh, the, this ceiling had to be taken down for structural reasons in about 1900. And we read in the records quite an interesting... Uh, account of the controversy that surrounded this. Uh, The uh, architect uh, in charge of the project gave in a report the effect that I don't think he particularly cared for for this ceiling and his opinion was that it should be replaced by a very simple version. However, um, it's our good fortune that the governors of the time insisted that it be reproduced exactly in replica which must have been a formidable task and which incidentally was carried out in papier-mâché.
2: as important as the master's quarters. It's a two-story section, and the interesting thing about it is that there are uh, two small rooms, uh, at the hall and the landing, which are the original 17th century rooms. The panelling, doors, fireplaces are the original, and they're very rare examples of the work of that time. Uh, the style of the period uh, will require furnishing, which should be in that 17th century. Period, and uh, we're working on that. We we have a tremendous furniture branch here that provides furniture, and we'll be looking for ideal pieces for this. But the interesting thing about the Masters Court is when you come down to the the ground level, uh, you find there the area has been remodeled by Francis Johnson in uh, nineteenth century work. Uh, He increased the size of the of the dining room and uh, it's uh, it's very unusual to find uh, a series of centuries work living so closely together and providing uh, a unity now to us in this generation we accept the variation in styles mm-hmm. between uh, particularly door things like door treatments window treatments the uh, decoration internally, mm-hmm. John Costello has followed exactly the decoration that mm-hmm. would have been used at that time for each of the differing centuries, yes. uh, so that you're getting a different feeling about them. Now, mm-hmm. to us in this generation, we probably don't see the break, but in Francis Johnson's time, He may have had students walking up and down outside the placard saying, you know, don't (laughs) let this pad loose. (laughs) But uh, he managed to do it, and it's Mm. totally acceptable now, and Mm. it's a fascinating Mm. trip to go through that area uh, between two floors.
1: One of the most eye-catching features of the Royal Hospital is the steeple in the north wing. It contains a sundial and a turret clock, both of which were restored by Julian Cosby.
10: I think the, the greatest interest is putting back into life something which, has, which is no longer working, but the, also the enjoyment is putting back to life something which someone at some stage took minutes' pride in, and it's this pride that you feel when you're restoring a clock and putting it back to life. Most, most people judge clocks by what they see, and that's the dial. But um, some of the earlier clocks, things like the levers that's behind the dial, were most beautifully chased out and um, formed into curves and things, which had nothing to do with the operation of the clock, but it's entirely the pride that the person had in making the clock.
1: How long altogether did the job take? When when did you start working on the clock?
10: Uh, I started the clock in July. I I took the clock, I dismantled the clock and brought it down to the workshop in July, but I wasn't able to get at the dials of the clock outside until the scaffolding went up, and it was October time before the scaffolding went up. Initially, uh, the dial, it was just a question of repainting the dials and go leaving them. But when we got up there, one of the major factors was, that being October, it was the wrong time year to do go leafing outside. And when I chipped the the paint off, the old paint off, I found that there was quite a rust underneath the paint and it became quite evident that it's not every day that you have scaffolding this high and one would have to make it do a proper job of it, this meant, So we decided to take the dials down. Um, and as the dials are... Six foot in diameter. They're made of cast iron. They're, they're in two sections, and each section weighs a weight and a half. So it was no easy task getting getting them down. All the hand, there are four dials to the clock, and all the hands were missing. Mm-hmm. So one, in with restoration work, if one has to replace a part, one has, one tries to to make things in keeping with the period of the clock. So, before I could make the new hands, I had to go around and see if I could find a design which was in keeping with what should be there. And I was fortunate enough to find a clock in the country of roughly the same period, about 1870. And uh, I copied from these the hands for Clamenum.
1: However, missing parts weren't the only problems Julian Cosby faced.
10: Uh, in this case, the belfry was exposed to the elements, which which meant the pigeons could get up into the clock room. Consequently, the clock movement was covered in pigeon manure. This together with compacted oil, grease and oil meant that all the wheels had become um, contaminated with vertigree. Once you've done a preliminary clean, you're then in a position to inspect a little more closely the wire of the clock. In this case, uh, there were no cracked wheels, which is common in some clocks uh, but the bearings were worn in one or two places and these had to be replaced Uh, the major part which was damaged was the escapement the escapement is the heart of the clock and in this particular clock it's, it's fitted with a gravity escapement which was invented by Lord Grimthorpe and first used on the great clock at Westminster the escapement had been rather had been welded up quite well mind you but it wasn't correct and they had also had, had had trouble with one of the arms bouncing, and you can see they've added an extra weight. Oh,
5: yes.
10: This I've removed. Um, and when, I've made, when I made the new escape wheel, mm-hmm. I took an account of this. And um, so far, i we been working very satisfactorily without the weight.
1: How long will it last now, do you think? <laughs>
10: that's a problem which you, can't, you cannot answer because you're restoring, you're not making you're restoring what is there I'm sure if the parts of the clock are still the original age so you can't say what might happen tomorrow but hopefully it's in as good a condition as it was when it was first put up
1: restoration work on the hospital was finished last year exactly 300 years after the building was first completed before he left the site i asked paddy sullivan what his feelings were now that the job was done
7: oh i think uh, one of great achievement i think i have that uh, it's can, i think it's very nice to go into, into the great hall or into the church and uh, look at all the paneling and the doors and everything and just say to yourself that you helped a little bit in the restoration of it. You know, like uh, there was many other fine tradesmen that worked here. You know, like and uh, I suppose I just happened to be one of one. But um, I think um, it's a it was a lovely job. It's a beautiful job.
1: How did working in the Royal Hospital differ from the normal work that you would be doing?
7: Well, usually in office blocks you have uh, you don't have as much timber work as what you had here in the Royal Hospital. Anyway, you were lucky if you had. Um, archetype around the door even but here it was miles and miles of timber work you know um it was timber work all the way every day you came in like it was it was a case of having good keeping the tools in good shape and you had plenty of timber to cut anyway i must i must say
3: i I really did enjoy working here in in the royal hospital i expect really a principal aim in the work from the architectural end, was in some way to attempt and try to retain the the character and feeling of this historic building. And essentially, of course, this was involved uh, everybody. It was a very large team job, and we had very good contractors. And I'd really feel, uh, to just sum it up, it was this this job, for what it's worth, it was really the, the work of very many hands indeed, Uh, both from the past and today.
1: The building has now been handed back to the state and plans are underway to open it to the public and to turn it into a major centre of culture and the arts. Noel Deshenew has a personal view, however, of how the story of the Royal Hospital might be brought to life for the public. Uh,
2: I have a personal bias myself uh, that I I fondly think of uh, and it's only because of having seen it in uh, Les Invalides in Paris that if you take a summer's night good weather it's got to be good weather unfortunately with this idea and uh, consider entering the public entering the courtyard and seating around I'd see it as people sitting down in darkness and before the thing starts and you sit facing the main wing that's with the chapel and the uh, the great hall and the and I'd see a light coming on in the chapel and maybe hymns being sung and the story starting from that. And have it come to life in Saint-Élumier, yeah. uh, one would hear the clatter of hooves across the cobbles and lights would come on at the entrance gates and at the call of uh, the century. And then lights come on in the courtyard slowly as the uh, The arcade lights up and then particular rooms would light up and a a, a small drama take place of what took place in that room. And uh, I think this could suddenly bring to uh, light the imagination of everyone of what did happen in Kilmainham and what the history of Dublin, what effect it had on Kilmainham. And uh, that's the way I'd see the building coming to life for the public.